0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2012. Today's episode is titled, Jesus, Jobs, and Money. For most of us, jobs are the way we make money, and money is a high priority for us so that we can live the way we want to live, that is, doing our will according to our ways. Many of us view jobs as little more than a necessary evil. If we didn't have to make money, we probably would not pursue getting a job. Ever wonder how Jesus viewed jobs and money? Find your mission in life, that is, the work that God created you to do. If you are an organizational leader, seek to discover the divinely ordained mission of your organization. Then build your organization with people who view their lives as divinely ordained missions. For such people, jobs and money are tools to facilitate the will and ways of God. True wealth is righteousness, and true success is obediently completing your mission in life, both personally and organizationally. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Jesus, Jobs, and Money. Let's begin in prayer. Well, Father, we want to thank you tonight for
1: the opportunity to consider Jesus Christ and what he had to say about jobs and money. And, Father, we thank you that you do speak on these issues, and you speak in a relevant way, in a way that's compelling, in a way that should guide and direct how we live. So we want to commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about Jesus' jobs and money, and I want this to be interactive, i.e., I want it to be fun. So I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to feel free to talk to me, give me your answers, and it's okay if we laugh a little bit, that's fine too. So let me start by asking you this question. What is the purpose of salvation? What is the purpose of salvation? You guys all go to church, okay, and you've heard the gospel for years. I assume that most of you are believers, so what's the purpose, Bob?
0: Salvation means you're no longer separated from God.
1: Okay, that's what it means. It means it deals with the whole issue of sin and death. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's the purpose of dealing with that issue? Bring
0: us into God-likeness.
1: Bring you into God-likeness. Okay, that's certainly... Part of it. What else?
0: Redemption.
1: Knowing God, knowing your Creator, you can't know Him in the state of, of of depravity. You need to be saved so you can know your Creator. That's true. So what else?
0: Redemption, understanding what true love is.
1: Mm-hmm. That Under- God
0: sent his Son to die for our sins so that we could be back with Him for
1: okay. eternity. Alright. So it restores what was lost. Right. Okay. So what else? What's the purpose of salvation? brings in the truth and shows the, the real value that God has mm-hmm. for us versus what the world has beat us down with. Connects us with truth. Mm-hmm. If we don't have Jesus Christ, we are living in a world that is only where we only see partial truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, we see a little bit of truth, and we wouldn't function at all. So we see a little bit of truth enough to be able to function. That's all we do is function. We survive. But he's come to give us life and give it life abundantly. That's right. That's what he's come to do. That's, that's a real significant aspect of what salvation's all about. But well, what else is salvation all about?
0: God created us and he wants us to worship him. And the only way that can happen is if
1: he makes the path open. To in a state, as a depraved sinner, we're not going to worship God. And he desires, though, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay. Those are good answers. What else? Have fellowship with him. Have fellowship with him. Okay. What else? To
0: bring, hope. to bring God glory.
1: To bring God glory. Manifest God. To manifest who he is and how he works. It's one of the purposes of salvation. Well, what else? Hope. Hope. That's right. There is hope. Yeah. I, I know a, where I'm going. There's in a depraved, depraved state, all we know is we're going to die and that's it. There is no hope. Salvation gives us deliverance from death. It gives us eternal life. It deals with the sin issue of life. What else? Well, in that hope, we're going to be part of a plan that we have no idea about. A plan. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, God has something going on here. and We get to play a role in it? Uh-huh. Okay, now we're going a little deeper here. So what else? Can we build on that? By the way, theologians call that plan the meta narrative. The meta narrative. Purpose. That mean, meta means uh, great narrative story. It's the great story. It's the overarching story against which everything else is a subplot. Okay, does that help anybody? Purpose. Stimulating, huh? Purpose. Purpose.
0: Everything we do in
1: life is to glorify God. Okay, it, it is. Work. Yes. Okay. Anything else? Haven't heard anybody say anything about going to heaven? That's usually one of the first answers you get. Mm-hmm. Salvation is about going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Y'all, didn't, y'all didn't jump on that one. Okay, Anybody want to grab that one? It's here. It's here. It's, here. <laughs> it's coming to us. <laughs> the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, it is. It is at hand. Idea.
0: I think that's
1: very true. We we see through a glass darkly, we know so little about what that's going to be like. The greatest of experiences here are nothing compared to what eternity is going to be like with God. I think that's a fair statement. Well, one of the things of being part of his plan is you're paying attention today, right now. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not overcome by what has happened or what you think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're
0: just dealing with Mm-hmm. Well, if we talk about being part of his plan, mm-hmm. then he has an idea of what he would like for each of us to be doing.
1: Uh-huh. Aha. So I presume some of that would be that he's granted us different gifts and abilities. Mm-hmm. And he has an idea of where he would like us to use those. Now you're talking like he's very strategic. Mm-hmm. Like he's intentional. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hearing. Okay. Would you agree? Is he strategic and intentional? He does things for a reason? There's a purpose behind everything? Which would suggest if he is sovereign and control of his universe, does anything happen randomly? No. There's no real random. It looks random to us. And we talk about chance and and good luck. We talk about flipping coins and you know, you know, rock, paper, scissors, and things like that are ways that we express (laughs) You know the the mystery of this existence and what's going to happen, but nothing happens randomly to God. He's in control of it all. And you see that, for example, when the apostles were going to to appoint someone to take Judas's place, you remember what they did in Acts one?
0: They
1: drew lots. That's right. Well, not only they drew lots; they did something else. They prayed. They said, "Lord, show <coughs> us Your will." in this seemingly random thing we're going to do.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. You go look at the text. That's what happened. Yeah. They asked the Lord to show us your will. See, they, they didn't view that as just, a, oh, i flipping the corner and see who gets to kick off first, you know. <laughs> no, this was, this was about discerning the will of God. You see, they had a profound sense of the intentionality of God that sometimes eludes <clears throat> us because we, we live in a world that doesn't believe any of this. We're bombarded by it all the time. The media, you know, the books, newspapers, I know newspapers are kind of dying, but the online news that you're reading on your iPad and your iPhone, it's all bombarding us with secular perspective about this universe. We don't hear a profound sense of what God is doing. In fact, we're getting to the point we can't even talk about God right. in any context. I went to a graduation here recently was my niece's graduation from high school. So I was very careful to, I was watching everything. And <clears throat> in the whole, whole time, it was about a two and a half hour um, ceremony, um, there was only one mention of God. And that was in the pledge. And I was curious whether or not they were going to do that. <laughs> but they did. And, and interesting, it was not led. The pledge, uh, there was no one leading the pledge. They had the color bearers up there, and we were all saying the pledge on our own. And the whole audience said under God. Only time, the whole time, that God was mentioned. And we had speeches from the valedictorian, the salutatorian, from the president of the class, from the principal of the school. and the. I'm going to read um, the first few verses, and then I'm going to focus on the last few. We're going to read the first uh, ten verses of the chapter. This is Paul writing to professing Christians in, this, in the city of Ephesus, and you may recall from the book of Acts that Ephesus was the city where Paul had a two-year discipleship program. You remember that one? Where he met with these 12 men for every day for two years to talk and teach about the kingdom of God. And you may recall that what happened as a result of that discipleship group was all of Asia heard, the word of the Lord the, the 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 cities of Asia that that eventually John would write letters to were all birth from this discipleship program here in Ephesus so some years later Paul is writing to these these Christians in Ephesus and by the way Paul was granted permission by the God by God to go and to Ephesus only in Asia that is, in the province of Asia, he went to no other city except Ephesus. And so this was his place, his assignment. So I want you to hear the intentionality here of God. So as you, um, as you consider this text, remember Paul is writing to people he's intimately connected with, he knows well, he's spent a lot of time with. As for you, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, And the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. He's writing to people who've come to Christ. He's saying, you used to live like the world, but now you don't live like the world. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. All of us start out there. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Other translations say objects of wrath. So inherently, we are born in a state called depravity. That's what the theologians call it. And we are by nature then under judgment. We are spiritually dead, and we're going to die physically, and then there's going to be judgment because of our sin. But because of his great love, this is the good news here, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, that is, in the ages after this existence, he might show incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now all of us, if you've been around Christianity a length of time, you've heard this text expanded on, expounded on, preached on, it is a seminal text for what salvation is all about. Salvation is by grace, that is the empowering presence of Christ in us, that's a definition that james ryle gives of grace i think that's a good definition okay and through the agency of faith and that faith that you express and i express didn't come from us it is a gift from god faith manifests that we have been born again that god has touched us that we now belong to him so it's a free gift there's nothing we can do to save ourselves When we're genuinely saved, we manifest it by how we live. So it's very important to get it. If you really know Jesus, then you will look different from the world. Your life will be different. Now the question is, why? Why did he do this? Why did he choose to save us this way? What is God's purpose? Well, I think verse 10 gives us that purpose. For, in other words, this is the, the, the Greek word is gar. That's the word that's used there. It's it's saying, let me explain to you why God has just done this thing of salvation that he's given to you. And the, done it the way he's done it. There's a reason here. For, we are God's handiwork. That is, God has specifically created us intentionally and strategically in Christ Jesus... To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, that's a text that we've read probably many, many times and really maybe haven't pondered it. And so we want to just take a moment and ponder this. So what is what is this good works that we've been created to do? We've been created to do good works. Now, let's get real clear. We're saved by grace through faith. Not That's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So we're not talking about what saves you. We're talking about the evidence that you are saved. See, the way that you know a baby is alive when it comes out of the womb is it moves, it breathes, it makes noise. Likewise, how do you know someone really knows Christ? Well, they begin to do things that reflect Christ. They reveal that they're alive in Christ. And so what he's saying here is we are created in Christ Jesus to manifest life. And not just life, but specific life. He uses the word good works. Now, this word good, there are two words in the Greek language that are translated good. The first one is called agathos, and the second one is called kalos. Okay, Agathos and kalos. Now, these words are used in the same verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And that verse gives us a clue as to what these words really mean or meant to the people that spoke the Greek language. Remember when Jesus said, a good tree bears good fruit? Y'all remember that? Okay. The first good there is agathos. An agathos tree bears kalos fruit. The second, second word good is kalos. So what's a, what's a good tree? It's a tree that's fundamentally healthy. It's sound. It has the proper nutrients. It's properly placed in the soil. It's fit for, it, its, purpose. It's, fit for its purpose. It's it's Everything is right. And then it bears kalos fruit. The fruit reflects the tree. Mm-hmm. Now, see, that's very important to recognize because what he, what he uses here is the word akathos. So he's saying that what God has done through salvation is make you now intrinsically good. So if you're now intrinsically good, guess what? You're going to have good fruit. You can, you can produce kalos, kalos fruit. So you've got to get it. This is the way God made you. He sovereignly did it. So agathos, and then he says ergon. This is good works this is what we translate it. This word ergon is a general word for work. It's used of all kinds of work. It it, it doesn't matter, farming, it can be craftsmanship, it can be selling, management, education, it doesn't matter. It's a general word for work in the Greek language. So the translators, as they've translated this text over the years, have translated things like good deeds. Now what's a good deed sound like?
0: Charity. Huh? Charity. Charity.
1: Charity. Charity. Like helping somebody across the street if you're a Boy Scout or something, you know, it's a good deed, you know. I mean, I was trained as a Boy Scout to, you need to have do good deeds, you know, and maybe we bring it in the context of the Christian church and we think, well, good deeds are like, well, going on a mission trip or teaching a Sunday school class or um, going to a Bible study or maybe going to help the pastor out, going to be part of the work day at the church. Those are good deeds. That's kind of what we think. This word here is way beyond that. If you if that's where you limit your definition, you've missed what he's saying here. What he's saying here is everything you do. If you're a housewife, the dishes that you wash, the the people that you nurse back to health, the the rooms that you clean, the vacuum cleaner, everything that you do, it's all about agathos ergon. It's about doing it with the right heart. And when you do it with the right heart, you're going to produce kalos, good fruit. So he's saying, this is why you have been created, is I want to change the way you work. I want to transform you. You're not going to work for yourself. It's not about you and your lustly desires. Remember the first part of the text? He's talking about you're just living for yourself, lustly desires. That was your old nature. But once you've come to Christ, you are now transformed, and you no longer live for yourself. You are to live solely to do the will of God. And his will is that whatever assignment he's given you, you're to go, and you're to go with the right heart, Agatho's heart, so you can produce that, that good fruit, that ergon that he's called you to do. So this is, this is the essence, to me, of what salvation is. We are saved, not so much to go to heaven, although we will. We're saved, you know, to enjoy all the blessings of salvation. That's true. But there's something more than that. We're saved to be a service. We're saved to do his bidding. Every day when I get up, what I try to do as a sign that I understand this is I I say, and I'll say it out loud, Father, your servant reports for duty. I'm here to do his ergon. The ergon he's assigned to me. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Yes, that's right. And like you said, he's very intentional. What I do is not up to me. It's up it's his assignment. I don't have a choice. I have been given everything that I have, whether it's my gifts, my talents, skill, ability, the, the maturity, the opportunities, the setting, the parents, the everything about my life has been given to me so that I can do his ergon. And I can do it with an Agathos heart. It's got to be agathos, ergon. uh, Work that reflects the goodness of God. that's operative in me. So this means that everybody has an assignment. You don't have a job. You have an assignment. We have Marketplace Prayer at, at our church, and one of the things that I've really been blessed with as I've worked with these men is there are a number of things that we have done to really line up our prayers with Scripture, for example, many times people will send us a prayer request saying, um, I need to pray, I need you to pray for a job. I need a job. Okay, well, we have agreed that we don't pray for jobs. We pray for assignments. Because we know every God has an assignment for every human being. And when you are walking with God and you are tuned into what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life, you will discern that assignment, and you'll know that is what I'm supposed to do. You see. Yep, the last in, last part of the verse here remember what he said? good works which God prepared in advance for us to do that is a plan. that is the meta-narrative. God has this plan going on and each one of us has a part. We're all kind of like a bit parts in a ma- massive play And so he says to Charlie, Charlie, you're on. So, Charlie, you go out there and you do what God created you to do. And then when you're through, then you exit and the next person comes on. And that's the way it works. And when you see that it doesn't matter what it is that you're called to do, it is valuable to God because God has made this world that he calls very good. Very agathos. It's intrinsically good because it came from him whatever comes from him is intrinsically good so as you begin to think about work think about what it is that God has assigned me to do it doesn't matter what it is you know when I grew up um, my dad was a contractor he did mechanical work and I remember as a little boy going out to job sites this would have been in the early fifties and this is before the days of mechanical ditching equipment, like little backhoes and, and ditch witches and things like that we have today that we kind of take for granted. We didn't have those back then. You know what we had? Double. Double. We had what we call the Bill Duke. You know what a Bill Duke is? A sharpshooter? Yeah. And that's how you would dig ditches. You know, you pound that thing in the ground, and the ground is usually pretty hard. Sometimes you have to take a pick and loosen the ground. But you would dig these ditches with this, this, this sharpshooter. And I remember going out to job sites, and here I am, four or five years old, looking at these ditches, and the walls are perfectly straight. The bottom of the ditch is absolutely smooth, and it's, it's sloped because it was a sewer ditch. It had to be sloped. It's sloped perfectly from the building out to where it's connect, you're going to connect the sewer onto the sewer main. I just looked at that, and even as a kid, I said, that, that's incredible. That's a good that, ditch. That is an unbelievable ditch. That was a ditch that honored God. Those guys had a sense of what it was to really worship God as they worked. By the way, you know the first word for work in Scripture? It's found in Genesis chapter 2. It's the Hebrew word, abad. Now, in Genesis, it's translated to till the ground. Now, in Psalms, that same word is translated two different ways. It's translated to serve and to worship. Inherently, in the word, the very first word for work is a sense of worship. Now, if you don't have that sense of worship in what you're doing, then may I suggest you're not not working at the level that God has called you to? And it may be because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe you're out of place. Or maybe you don't have the right attitude toward work. Whatever it is, we need to recover the biblical view of work if we're ever going to do it well. Why did those ditch diggers dig those ditches that well? Because there was something in them that drove them to do it. And we need to be living that way. And you say, well, gee, that it, digging a ditch, what's that? No, digging a ditch counts in the meta-narrative. It counts. The most lowly thing you could think of counts in the meta-narrative. Because you see, God has designed everything according to his will. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do Agathos Ergon, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's all already planned. It's already set out. How many of you play played football or ever played football? Okay, several of you have played football. You, you may have had similar experiences. You know that... When a game comes, you always have a plan. And they script about the first, you know, two or three series that they expect to have the ball. That's pretty well scripted. And you're going to run those plays. And after that, it's free-for-all. Because the plan does, never works. And now you, you're always improvising and adjusting and changing everything. So that's the best man can do. Guess what? God never has to improvise. He, he's got it absolutely orchestrated. Our only responsibility is when we come to Christ is now to live as if we're alive. You hear that? And you live as if you're alive when you discover what God created you to do and you do the thing that he put you here on earth to do. Whether it's dig a ditch, whether it's to be a life coach in the home, whether it's to be a pastor, whether it's to be a school teacher, whether it's to be an attorney, whether it's to be a public speaker, whether it's to be a a manager, a salesman, a manufacturing agent, it doesn't matter what it is you do, if you've done it, if you discern the will of God for your life and you're doing it, that is your assignment. And oh, by the way, yeah, you might call it your job, but I prefer the word assignment. The word job carries the connotation of something I have to do. An assignment is something I am privileged to do. We are all privileged to do what God has created us. To do. So Jesus Christ has work assignments for us. It's not just being missionaries. It's not just being Bible teachers. It's not just being, you know, people that lead churches. Those you things have be to be done. To be Pardon me? You could be called to be a ditch digger.
0: You you
1: Absolutely. Christ. You might be called to be a waitress, a cook. You might be called to be a clerk at a store. You might be called to be a line worker on a, on a manufacturing line somewhere. Whatever it is. Hey, it is it's dignified, it's significant, because God has ordained and created you to do it. That's what gives work dignity and value. It's the way we worship. It's the way we honor God. There's a there's a church up in New York State that's really I think got a vision of this, and it's one of the few that I know of that's doing this kind of thing. Where they're actually they uh, they they've developed a culture where You cannot call anybody on staff a minister. It's not allowed. Okay? Because they recognize that the ministers are the people. Minister means one who serves. That's what it means. So following what Paul said in Ephesians 4, where he talks about, you know, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are given to the body of Christ to prepare us for ministry, to equip us for ministry. So the church leaders are equippers. So you can call a church leader a pastor, or you can call him an equipper, but you cannot call them a minister. And then every, every Sunday at the end of the service, whoever's leading the service will ask all the ministers to rise up. And so, of course, after a while you figure that out. You're supposed to stand up then. So, so all the ministers stand up. And they, they pray, pray a commissioning prayer over them to release them to the ministry that the Holy Spirit has sent them to when they leave that building. Which means for the next week, you're on assignment from God to do what he's created you to do, and we are supporting that. Isn't that a sound way to think that through? I mean, it's a totally different way of seeing you know, how to walk with God. Okay, so that's the jobs. So let's talk about money. You want to talk about money? Money. Money, money, money. Everybody wants to talk about money. Okay, so can I can I set this up for you by asking you a question? Can I do that? Yeah. you let me do that? Okay, thank you, counselor. Okay. If, if you have money and plenty of it, are all your needs met? Is there anything you need? I'll be honest here. Most of us think if we have money, everything's cool. Everything's cool. I, I could, if I got a problem, I can I could buy whatever I need to solve the problem. Okay, if I got money, I got what I need. Somebody told me uh, that Johnny Carson made the statement one time that the only 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 problem that money solves is not having money. Thought so that's a pretty clever way to put it. That's the only thing it solves. It didn't solve anything else. Well, I think it's fairly common. I, just a quick little anecdotal story. I was invited to speak to a financial services company um, here in Dallas that prides themselves on being um, uh, practicing a biblical worldview in what they do. And so I, I, I'm happy to go down here and visit with them. Uh, I said, What do you want me to talk about? You want to talk about retirement? You want to talk about money? You want to talk right. about investing? Well, talk about anything you want to talk about from a biblical worldview. Okay, what are, so they pick money. I said, great. So I said, okay. How many of you believe that if you have money, then all your problems are pretty well solved? Ding ding! Round the table, everybody's raising their hand. Yeah. I said, okay. That's what you project to your clients. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty much what we believe. And you profess that this is a biblical perspective. Now their hands are coming down a little bit. Maybe not quite, but you know that's true. That's how we think. I said, okay. Can I read you this text? Then this is uh, this is what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, which was a church in Asia. It was one of the churches that was founded, I believe, by one of Paul's disciples in his discipleship group in Ephesus. So um, this is probably some, you know, twenty or thirty years after the church is founded. So you know, what, you know what happens when you start something. There's a lot of zeal and a lot of focus on the Purity of the, of the movement and the vision and all that. But then over time, what happens? Things kind of go astray. You know, we kind of lose our focus and our direction. Well, things were, things were going astray here in this church. So um, Jesus writes to this church, and this, this, uh, this is the last letter of his seven letters. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds. Uh, By the way, that's the word ergon. I know you're ergon. I know how you work. I know what's going on every day in your homes, in your workplace, everywhere. I know it all. That you are neither cold nor hot. Now, that's a real interesting metaphor because Laodicea was between Colossae and Hierapolis. And they got, they didn't, Laodicea did not have natural water. So water was literally uh, piped in. From Hierapolis, and the water at Hierapolis was very cool, but it, it was about a five-mile journey in this underground pipe. So by the time it got to uh, to Laodicea, that cool water was lukewarm. So it was not it was not a desirable war, war, uh, water temperature. So immediately, I mean, he's using something these people would be very familiar yeah. with. Lukewarm water is a problem there. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't drink coffee, but people that drink coffee tell me you either want it hot or cold. Right. Nothing in between. Is that right? Yeah. Those of you coffee drinkers? Well, that's kind of the picture here. This is, you know, it's a metaphor of drinking a beverage that you need one or the other, but not the middle. The middle is not good, which is a way of saying he's not happy. Is it clear he's not happy? He's not happy here. Okay, then he's going to tell them why he's not happy. You say, you're making this claim. Here's what they claim. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, most of us, if we're brutally honest, if we have money, everything's pretty cool. If we don't have money, things are not cool. We're in trouble. In fact, we're probably going to show up for Friday morning prayer because we need to pray for money. And by the way, that's another thing our prayer group has agreed to do: is we don't pray for money. You know why? Because, Even if somebody got money. It might help me. Well, you know it's difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom. Mm-hmm. That is a reality. When you have riches in anything, you might have riches in just skill. Okay, riches financially, riches in a big family, lots of children, whatever you have riches in. You know, you can get a lot of pride in those riches. And you know what God says about the proud? God opposes the proud. Now, how many of you here have ever been proud? Whenever I've been in pride, God has been opposing me. Now, that's a very humbling thing. When I saw that, it's kind of one of those things you drop to the floor and repent. And say, Lord, I don't even know if I should get up. I've got so much repenting to do, I don't know that I can get up. But... He's gracious to us, so he, he, he forgives us. But we've got to realize that that riches can be a ver- can be a trap. They they make us think lies and deception. We think we're hot stuff. Look what we did. We produced this money. We made this deal happen. I, you know, people think I'm so great. They pay me a bunch of money. That's that's all pride. God's not into that.
0: The, the right attitude is God gave me the ability to be there to do that. And so I shouldn't take credit for
1: it. Not only did he do that, he set everything up so you could do it.
0: Yeah.
1: You, just because you had the ability doesn't mean you could do it. He still had to give you a context and set everything up for you to do it. See, so we've got this problem. We think money is the deal. We measure everything by money. For example, is Bill Gates a success?
0: In terms of the world, is. Yes.
1: Is he a success or not? Well, most everybody was. Oh, yeah! why wow. he's the second richest person in the world. He's not even the first richest person. There's somebody, there's a Mexican telecom guy that's richer than he is now. So he's the second richest guy in the world with something like fifty-something billion dollars. So he's a great success. Okay. Well, Jesus died poor. Was he a success? Yes. Well, he didn't have any money. I was. As, as, as a
0: matter of fact. They, they took his clothes off and gave him away to the soldiers when he
1: went. <laughs> That's right. Didn't have anything, did he? No place to lay his head. You know, he had a thief that was robbing uh, his purse. You know, lost his clothes. Everything. Didn't have anything. I mean, you look at Jesus. You know, at the, at the time he died, he was penniless. He was homeless. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his followers. Rejected by the religious leaders. Rejected by the political leaders. Had no standing really anywhere. He did a poor job of transitioning from carpentry into preaching. You know, he didn't have the proper finances to do that. My goodness, he looked like a total failure to us. Any business consultant would look at him and say, Man, you got a real problem here. Was he a success? Yes. Now, I was sharing this one night, and everybody's, when it got to that point, they're all kind of looking at me like, You know, well, it's got to be a different definition. Well, why is it a different different definition? You see, Bill Gates, we don't know if it's a success or not. Because the real definition of success is, did you do the will of God? Mm -hmm. John 17, 4. Jesus' high priestly prayer gives us the definition of success. He says, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the ergon that you gave me to do. There's that ergon again. You see, Jesus, just like you and I, he had a work assignment. That included 18 years, apparently, of being a carpenter. You ever, uh, just a side point here. You like a little side rabbit trails here? Have you ever wondered why when Jesus called his disciples, they immediately left their workplaces and their families and everything to go follow him? You ever wondered that?
0: It <laughs> probably broke.
1: <laughs> What's the deal here? I mean, he said, come follow me, and they just do it. You said... Something, there was something, there was a predicate that was laid in place here. There was preparation that went into this. Well, it's an interesting thing to note that that, that many of these guys are fishermen. And what do fishermen have? They have boats. Right? And the boats are made out of? Wood. Wood. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. How far was Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee? About, About 30 miles. About 30 miles. It'd take a day, a little more than a day. I can't prove this, but I suspect that Jesus helped them build a lot of their boats. And so they saw, they saw the quality of this man's work.
0: They saw how good that ditch was. They
1: saw something that they didn't see in anybody else. And so when he issued the call, there was no question. We're there. I'm with you. You see, I think that's the power of doing the errand you're called to do. So Christ defines success not in terms of money, not in terms of power and influence, not in terms of standing. He defines success in terms of obedience. I don't know if Bill Gates is a success or not, or Warren Buffett or whoever else has got a bunch of money. I don't know if they're successful or not. And I don't. And you and I don't have to worry about that. Our concern is finding the ergon that we're called to do and doing it. That's what matters. That's Jesus' definition of success. Okay, so we all have this issue with money. We think it's something it isn't. We make it bigger than it is. And as a result, we we tend to buy into this presupposition, just like the the gentleman uh, down there at that investment banking firm. When I posed this question to them, they were all buying into it. And I said, okay, after I shared with them this verse... I said, well, let me read you to the rest of the verse. You agree with this first half. You agree when it says, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. You agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. Okay, let me read the rest of the verse. And notice what he says. He says, but you do not realize. Does that mean you're in deception? Yes. That means you don't understand. You don't get it. You have bought a lie. You do not realize that you are. Here's the real shape you're in. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Any questions?
0: <laughs>
1: you say, "Whoa! How could that be true?" I got plenty of money. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to, to Bill Gates or Warren Buffett? You know, you you think you got everything you need? Well, let me tell you what you're really like. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They saying, "What? Huh? What, what do you? How could that be?" Well, because we don't understand. Money. What is money? What's the poor purpose of money? Why do we have money? Well, let me just offer you a thought. Money is very, it's very simple what money is. Money is one thing. It is a tool to do the will of God. It's a tool of success in that it's a tool to enable you to do the ergon you've been called to do. That's the reason you need money. You don't need money for any other reason. If you think you need money to make yourself financially secure, money will never make you secure. The only thing that will make you secure is Christ. And so when you begin to see money as a tool to do the will of God, well, suddenly money is no no different from a screwdriver or a hammer. You, you pick it up when it's the right tool for the, for
0: the job, and That's you right. don't when it's not. That's
1: right, and I don't have a garage full of, of screwdrivers. I don't hoard screwdrivers. I mean, people hoard money, but I don't do a screwdriver. I just use a screwdriver for its intended purpose. I use money for its intended purpose. Whatever that purpose is, I'm trying to tune in. What is the Father wanting to do? Did you know that Jesus was not an opportunist? Did you know that? How many of you consider yourself an opportunist? I know all of you know oh, not going not to admit to it. <laughs> but the reality is we're all opportunists. We're looking for the, the next opportunity. Well, look at Jesus. He could have taken care of all the poverty. No problem at all. I mean, my goodness, we need to pay tax. He said, go over there and get that fish, and in the mouth you'll find you know the gold piece and pay our taxes for that. I mean, what, <laughs> what kind of life is this? Look. <laughs> where every day you never know where it's going to come from and how it's all going to fit together. Well, that's a life of faith. It's a life of obedience, a life of doing the will of God. Now, this is not saying that you won't have order in your life. You will. But Jesus lived so intimately with the Father, he was always simply doing what the Father directed him to do. But he could have taken care of all poverty. He could have taken care of all sickness. He could have cast out every demon. He could have gotten rid of the Roman forces that were occupying Israel. He could have done all that. He could have made everybody wealthy. He could have, hey, Look at all the stuff he could have done. He could have gone around the world and preached the gospel to everybody, but he didn't do any of that. You say, gosh, boy, he missed a great opportunity, didn't he? Well, to us, it looks like a missed opportunity. That's how we look at it. But you see, Jesus had one singular thing. He had his radar zoomed in what is the Father directing me to do? The Father is very specific, intentional, and I'm only going to do what He's called me to do. I have a client that uh, is involved in a, a charity, a nonprofit, um, and, I, and I'm sharing the stories, not saying that I agree with the nonprofit world. I think, on some level, the nonprofit world uh, is a paradigm that maybe doesn't stand biblical test. And I'd love to talk to you about that, but that's beyond our scope tonight. But anyway, he's part of this nonprofit group, and they want to give money to charitable causes, but specifically Christian causes. And so they wrote out a mission statement. And I read it, and it was one of these very vague and general, like, you know, we just, wherever we find an opportunity, you know, we're going to sow into it. And I said, well, how are you going to vet these opportunities? How do you know where the Spirit's working? You know, they had not even thought at that level. I said, you need to go ask the Lord, number one, is this organization supposed to exist? And number two, if it does exist, why did he ordain it? What is he trying to do with it? You see, God is very specific. He is intentional. If you can't specifically articulate what he has created you to do, you haven't discerned it yet. And so your job is to discern the agathos ergon that God created you to do. That is your responsibility. It's my responsibility. I don't have the freedom and the right to ignore that. If you do, that is, that is not an evidence of a true Christian. A true Christian is a servant of the master. And the master has a purpose. And the master has directed. And I must get under the master and do what the Master's directed me to do. So every day I've got to report to the master. Now granted, you may get today a 10-year plan for the master. He's going to lay out what he wants you to do over the next 10 years, but every day you still got to depend on him to walk that plan out. You see, this is an intentional, purposeful God. Money is a tool. Time is a tool. Resources like, like aptitudes and personality, your skill and ability, these are tools to enable you to do what God has put you here to do. And when you get it, that you count in the meta narrative that you're not just just a worker bee just one of millions that you know really don't matter see we're not like ants in that sense we are each individual we are not fungible you know what fungible means all the same fungible means interchangeable we are not fungible now dollar bills can be fungible when we had certific- stock certificates they were fungible we don't have those anymore Okay, uh, you know we might, <clears throat> you know, a lot of things are fungible. You go, you go buy fruit at a store. You know, a tomato's a tomato, an orange is an orange, pretty much. Okay, and I realize there can be some little variations there, but there are a lot of things that are fungible. But when it comes to people, people are not fungible. Stew is stew, and there's no other stew. Okay. Bob is Bob. There's no other Bob. Specific assignments for the two. They can't switch places. It will not work. He
0: could not do his job. Yeah, well, he couldn't do yours. <laughs> no, no It doesn't work.
1: And even if you were both attorneys and you both could do each other's job, you still aren't married to, you know, the, the, you got married to different people, different families, different contexts, different colleagues. There's all kinds of things that are different, even if you can do the same work. So you get, each of us has a specific assignment, and God has a purpose for everyone, for every family, for every child. Stu?
0: You know, I, I think where we get confused, at least I do, is I feel if I am doing the will of God, or mm-hmm. God,
1: mm-hmm. I will, and you've said this, find favor mm-hmm. or blessing, mm-hmm. but we equate all those blessings to money. Yes, if we have I money. Say, okay, Lord, I did such a great job here. How come you're not opening the floodgates mm-hmm. to all this business? That
0: I'm waiting
1: for. Yeah, blessing to us is denominated by dollars. Right, it is. No question about it. It is
0: nine out of ten times, I would say. And the other part is it's meeting our
1: expectations. Mm -hmm. Because we have a perception of lack. Most of us think we don't have enough money. If only I had more money.
0: Ecclesiastes 5.10.
1: And the reality is you have what you need to do what you're called to do today.
0: A mistake in your
1: calling. That's right. He he's doesn't a make common. mistakes. He,
0: he, 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 he put you in the place and gave you the proper resources to do what he's calling you
1: to do. Absolutely. And he lacks in, for nothing. You know, I I teach a, a several financial uh, seminars, and uh, in my financial management part two, in the opening lesson of that seminar, what I teach is, uh, out, of, out of Psalm 50, where it talks about how God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need your money. And I taught this about a year or two ago, and there was a lady on the call from Canada, and she just kind of went locked up. She just locked up. Uh, what? Because she was in business, working, thinking that i got to make a bunch of money so I can sow into the kingdom of God so God will have plenty of resources to, to spread the gospel around the world. And when she looked at that text in Psalm 15 and realized, well, my goodness, it makes no sense. Why He doesn't he need anything for me. He created everything. Why does he need anything for me? He needs nothing from me. Mm -hmm. And so she was challenged to see her work differently. It's not about generating money. And I said to her, you know, God may give you resources, and he may call you to sow those resources into various places. But the key is you follow what the Holy Spirit's directing you to do. You do the will of God. You do the ergon that God has directed you to do. And whatever resources he gives you, you ask him what does he want you to do. I was speaking at a church out in North Dallas a couple of years ago and I was talking about money and I said to the audience, and this is an interactive audience, so I said there were probably five or six hundred people there and they were talking to me. And which is kind of fun, talking to a talkative audience. So I asked them this question. I said, What would happen if God dropped hundred million dollars in your bank account tomorrow, no strings attached? What would you do? And what do you think was said? First thing that happened Retire. is a lady spoke up and said, go to thought, Well, that's, that's probably a very truthful comment. Go to Neiman's." And so I was looking for a better answer than that. <laughs> Finally, I said, let me coach you a little bit. Do you think it might be good to recognize that there's no accident that the money showed up in your account? that God may have something he wants you to do with that, and so maybe you ought to ask him what he wants you to do with that. Oh, different thought. See, because most of us think about our money as ours to spend as we want. Oh, okay, I'll tip God, I'll tithe, but the rest of it's mine. The reality is it's all his. It's all his. We are simply servants, Stewards. stewards. That's all we are. Whatever it is that God has given you, our job is simply to check in with him and say, what would you like for me to do with your resources? Let me suggest, no one has the right to define their own standard of living. That's in the purview of your master. He defines that for you. Your job is to submit to what he directs you to do. Steward your resources, and according to a biblical worldview, use those resources, therefore, to do the Aragon that God has called you to do. So this is a biblical view of money. So Jesus, jobs, and money. Jesus is the solution for life. Jobs are tools of obedience to God, ways that we worship him by doing what we're put here to do. Money is a tool to facilitate our obedience and alignment with the will of God. Now, the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, which is coming up in two weeks, is all about helping you get lined up with God. Helping you discover that Aragon that you've been made to do. Every one of you has got an Aragon assignment. And it may be multiple things throughout your life. Most people don't just do one thing all their life. They do multiple things. And you've got to be able to discern what those things are and when they're showing up. My wife is a... Uh, runs a Christian private school. She started out being a homeschool mom. And then she went into, when our kids were grown, she went into being a, a Christian, private Christian school teacher. And eventually she became the head of the lower school. And what I see God doing in her is putting a deposit of wisdom about education in her. And so what I see for her is moving into a consultant role, where she now is touching people Uh, in other places, not just one school and one set of parents, but actually touching people in many places. Well, she doesn't see that yet, but to me it's clear. Well, I think her Eragon is going to include that. And so we're praying and seeking the Lord and talking about that, getting clarity about what he wants to do. Well, this is how we have to live, seeking the Lord, discerning his Eragon for us. Strategic Life Alignment will give you some tools to help you do that. It will give you a methodology. There are exercises in there that will challenge you to look deep inside of you at the things that are standing in the way of you doing, the Aragon that he put you here to do. There's, you'll, you'll look at money differently. You'll look at work differently. You'll look at family differently. You'll look at authority differently. All these things will change as you get a biblical view of these, these issues.